So have no fear of them. Matthew chapter 10, verse 26. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. I want to begin by trying to answer two questions that this text I just quoted prompts. The first is, who is the them that we would naturally be afraid of? And the second is, well, why should we not be afraid? In today's gospel that we just heard, Jesus, if you sort of were kind of cataloging the things he was saying in your mind, he actually described three categories of them, uh, and then three grounds for why we actually don't need to be afraid. And so I want to kind of unpack those this morning. So the first them are those um, mentioned in verse 25 who malign the true apostles of Christ as being actually false and wicked. Jesus says that he himself was called Beelzebul, which was a nickname for um, the, the, a nickname for a Canaanite god, and so it kind of became this nickname for Satan in the first century. And Jesus predicts that if they called Jesus Satan, basically, you should also expect apostles to be slandered uh, unjustly. The fear from that standard is, of course, that maligners will be believed, that good reputations will be wrongly lost, uh, that ministry will be hampered, uh, and fear of insults, actually much like Jeremiah experienced. And that's why we heard that reading from Jeremiah, because he was preaching and uh, the people didn't want to hear what he had to say. And so they were constantly um, coming against him. I think uh, this word is actually really, um, that Jesus gives, is, is really useful and consoling in this polarized era of our national life. When the church too is often polarized, um, this threat of being maligned and, and misunderstood, which and then sort of you know tripling into wrongly accused, uh, is a threat on all sides. But no Christian on any side, to draw the line however you may and whatever side you're on, no Christian has anything to fear. And the reason is because the Lord, in his time, will expose everything for what it really is. All will be revealed in its true nature. And that's what Jesus says in verse 26. Nothing is covered that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be made known. So if someone, some teaching is truly good, no matter how it was received initially by people, the truth will eventually be evident. If it was maligned, the truth will actually nevertheless present. Inversely, if someone or some teaching is in fact bad, regardless of how it may have appeared on the surface at first, regardless of how it was spoken of, the badness will also be revealed. And it often takes time. Certainly the, the full sifting, the full revelation when everything will be known exactly for what it was and wasn't won't be till Judgment Day. So we actually have to wait till the next life for like the full bore clarity. And even in this mortal life, it often takes months and years for the true nature of things to be revealed. As the Lord says in Luke chapter 6, every tree is known by its fruit. And something I didn't realize until I've started to dabble in uh, garden agriculture is that uh, fruit actually takes multiple months to grow. <laughs> Having grown up in suburbia, I had no idea how long it takes for a fruit to grow. We have a little peach tree in our yard. and. Um, 48 of the 50 peaches went to the bugs, but I got to eat two of them. So that was a, a small success. But it still took six months to know. If you just saw that tree and you didn't know what a peach tree looked like, you wouldn't know for multiple months uh, until you saw the fruit, what that tree was made of. So because what may now be unclear or partially clear, because it will be made clear, that's why we don't need to fear. If in anything um, we're in the right, 
well, God will vindicate us. If in anything we're in the wrong, God will rebuke us. And that's actually a real comfort. Like, illumination is a comfort for the Christian, even when it illuminates bad things. It's like, well, at least now I see it for, for what it is. This is um, the ground for why St. Paul could write to the Corinthian church <clears throat> when just like the Israelites to Jeremiah, the Corinthian church was rejecting Paul's teaching and apostolic authority. He said, um, to be judged by his words, 1 Corinthians, Corinthians chapter 4, uh, to be judged by you or by any human court is a very small thing. It's not nothing, but it's a small thing compared to the judgments and the revelation of God. So that's the first them, maligners, and we know the reason to not fear is because God will pr has promised to make uh, all things known. The second them that Jesus mentions, um, and here we kind of move to the extreme case, the folks in verse 17 who turn Christians over to the authorities for being Christians, full-face persecution. Um, presently, this still exists in the world, right? In countries like Libya and Pakistan and Nigeria. It may someday become true in our increasingly hostile secular environment in the West. It wouldn't surprise me if one day Christian speech gets dubbed essentially hate speech because our message, the gospel message, is built on the idea that in each of us is something bad that we should hate. Right? Sin. Things that the part in us that rebels against God we should hate. And the, the description of what we should hate, the Lord calls us to point it, in, to point it into ourselves and to confess and repent of it, right? But even still, it participates in the spirit of um, sort of it's not just affirmation. And so I wonder if that message may someday um, be called hate speech. The fear in that situation would be, um, it would kind of escalate, small mistreatment, maybe trickling down to confiscation of property, destruction of livelihood, and of course the very worst thing is what Jesus names death. That's kind of what we saw in uh, the pagan Roman Empire, the, the multiple bursts of persecution in which Christians were handed over to the authorities and put to death for being, um, interestingly to remember, they were put to death for being bad citizens. They, the Romans, their, their claim, Romans were actually incredibly tolerant of religion. There were hundreds of religions that flourished in the Roman Empire, but Christianity, unlike the other religions where all religions other than Christianity, um, sort of rested on this idea of like, well, give a little token gift to whatever deity and maybe he'll bless your crop and it can kind of just fit in with regular life. What the Romans understood rightly is that Christian allegiance is a prior allegiance even to a nation. And that a Christian would actually be thinking what honors God at, before, they wouldn't just blindly do what the empire um, had said. So um, the Christians were, who were persecuted, and so that's the, they were called bad citizens of Rome. And that's why they were, when Jesus' prophecy was fleshed out, when they were, when Christians were turned over to the authorities, that's why. But Jesus says, so what? The worst thing that can be done to you is have your life taken from you. Now, there's a paradox built in there, right? Like if someone's trying to take your life, that's not usually a so what. But Jesus says, do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul, even though we are instinctively afraid of that. As Christians, we know because God has revealed it that we are each in possession of a valuable body and an even more valuable soul. And here's where Christianity differentiates itself from Platonism that would say, well, the body is of no value and the soul is of total value. Christians say, no, 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 the body is valuable. That's why Jesus saved us in the flesh, the incarnation. But the soul is even more valuable. And the life of the soul depends on the judgment of God. As um, Jesus says in verse 28, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. 
And at first glance, you might think, you hear hell, you think, oh, is that Satan? No, only that's God. Only God judges the Satan doesn't sit on the judgment seat. Only God sits on a judgment seat. Fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Fear God. And here's the wonderful paradox, I think, of the way fear works, is um, when we begin to adequately fear God, it actually displaces um, human threat, the fear of human threats. And this has been my experience in my life, that as I've begun to grip a, a fear of judgment day, and I'm not there, I hope to grow in fear, kind of a weird thing to say, say these days, but I actually want to become more fearful, have more holy fear of judgment day when every deed, every word, every thought is going to be laid bare by the, and under the cautious eye of God, the careful eye of God, um, and uh, my eternal fate will be determined one way or the other. When we begin to adequately fear Judgment Day, all other fears get relativized. So whatever thing you're afraid of, here's a list of things for me. Militant secularism, anarchy, a break into my home, MS-13, whatever it is that you've heard about that sounds scary, it actually gets diminished when we rightly fear God. I think this kind of works along the lines of a trope I've heard called um, in movies called the bigger monster trope. Um, I think I first saw it um, in one of the early Star Wars movies. I forget, you, you'll know which one because Heather's a Star Wars fan. What's the one where, I think it's Luke, he's running through like an ice cave and there's like this really nasty monster coming to get him and then this even bigger monster comes and eats that one? Yes. Yeah, um, it was in the early 2000s. Uh, oh, it's my favorite one. That's <laughs> Empire Strikes Back. Empire Strikes Back? Okay, all right. So it's like that bigger monster thing, right? Like you think this is the monster you should be afraid of, but oh boy, you should have been afraid of that bigger one. Um, that's sort of, a, like even if that monster doesn't, isn't even coming to do you harm, it's the bigger power, right? It's the, the, the monster of greater consequence. I'm not trying to say God is a monster. That's, that's where this is probably a really bad analogy. Um, but the point is that the, the greater fear displaces the lesser fear. That's how this works. That's the second them that Jesus is speaking of, those who could kill the body and why we should have no fear. The third them, um, unlike the first two, isn't some hostile party coming from outside. It's actually hostility from within the home. Jesus mentions it in verse 21. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents. I can't imagine anything more scary than being betrayed by your own family. Don't worry, Shanath, kids. I don't think it's going to happen. <laughs> to be betrayed because you follow Jesus and they can't stand it. I think that'd be the worst of the three. Mercifully, it doesn't happen in its full expression very often, but um, as many people who have become a Christian, who didn't grow up in a Christian home will testify, um, family rejection can take, comes in multiple degrees and wears multiple faces. Jesus himself, um, they thought he was his own blood family, thought he was crazy during his earthly ministry. So there's comfort in that. But what I want to do actually is combine all of these things with the saying that Jesus says in the gospel um, right after today's lesson. He says, whoever loves father or mother more than me um, is not worthy of me. Remember, this is the same Lord who said, honor thy father and mother. And so we have this very, um, Christian ethics are complex, right? Here we have, look, think of the, layer, the, the things we're pulling together here. Honor thy father and mother. Your father and mother could betray you if you were a Christian and they weren't, and there was a time of persecution. And yet, um, and if you love father and mother more than me, you're not worthy of me. I think these are the building blocks for building a theology of the family. And specifically, I want to focus on sort of Christian thinking about fatherhood on this Father's Day. Happy Father's Day. Um, it's very uh, timely to 
for this day. So the role of father can now be seen in its true light, in the light of God's fatherhood. I think what we see is this, that it is the case that we have a heavenly father who cares about us so much, right? Every hair on your head, which is a way of saying like, to the most minute detail. Like think about how much God cares about a sparrow of which there are like a billion, and you are worth more than many sparrows. I think it's one of the tenderest verses in the gospel. You're worth more than many sparrows. We have a heavenly father who is perfect and who cares for us. In fact, he's the only perfect father. All other fathers except him fail by degrees, right, in varying degrees. And even if a father fails in the extreme to the point of betraying his child over to the authorities, even then there is no need to fear for the child because the heavenly father will be standing beside us, watching over us with his fatherly love. As Jeremiah says, the Lord is with me as a dread warrior. Thankfully, fathers don't fail that catastrophically uh, all that often. But even when they fail in lesser degrees, we don't need to fear the effects of that failure because God in his mysterious way can redeem them. God can replace in himself as our father what was lost by the failings of our earthly fathers. Um, This dynamic means that we are always called to honor our parents as Christians, but also as Christians, we have a higher and deeper allegiance to God, who we call Father. Our loyalty to our blood family is mitigated by our loyalty to the living God. In the painful situation where family ever puts down the decision to choose between it and God, you choose God. And then... um, Speaking as a dad, and um, this is, I'm speaking as a dad because it's Father's Day, but this is true uh, actually in every vocation, not just even in the family, all vocations. Um, there's a un- father has a unique angle on it, as they all do. But there's this wonderful privilege of being called uh, to sh- icon forth the Heavenly Father, to show forth his tender, merciful heart. I love that line in the Eucharistic Liturgy every Sunday, in your tender mercy. That's the heart of God. We, we um, so often make the mistake of thinking about God the Father in light of what we know about how earthly fathers function. We should actually do the opposite. We should understand fatherhood by how the Father functions, and it's with tender mercy. We should icon forth that mercy to our families and by extension to the world. I think that's why it hurts so bad as a dad when, um, when I blow it either by losing my cool, by speaking angrily, by withdrawing, whatever it is, is because it's a betrayal of the original that I was supposed to be imaging, right? It's like, ah, oh, it's, it's not just interpersonal. It's I, was, I had a, a stewardship to present God's goodness, and I let that down. On the flip side, it's why it can be such a joy and a privilege to present the love of God also by analogy. Um, there's, I love those moments, and, and thanks, thankfully God provides them, that where. You're like, oh, that time I did it right. <laughs> and there was one time when Lucy uh, said something. I wrote it down in my Bible because it, it was like when she said it, I was like, that's the call. That's what I want to focus uh, my, my sights on and seek to live into. Lucy, on August 3rd uh, last year, she was crying in the night. I went in to just give her a snuggle and tuck her in again. And she said, you're such a sweet daddy. When you come in and visit me when I'm crying, you keep drawing me of Jesus's life. I think she meant to say you keep drawing for me. But you keep drawing me of Jesus's life. I was like, wow, that's what I want to do. You know, that, that's, in every vocation, 
And for me as a father, like I want to, that, that my, daughter, my family would look at me and get some picture of Jesus's love and kindness. That's a lifetime challenge. Um, like I said, it's, if you think about it, it's actually true in every vocation as Christians that we're called to present Christ to those that we are with um, as a way, of, uh, not just in our words, but as living icons. And that's the wonderful thing that Jesus here has um, told us not to be afraid. He's given us the things that dispel the darkness of fear, but not to then create some sort of empty playing field. He fills it with the light of his own glory that we actually get to, it says in the scriptures that Jesus shines forth the glory of the Father and the spirit of Jesus lives in his people that we actually can, by his grace, shine forth the glory of the Father to each other and our families. And, you know, families are just our nearest neighbors. When we hear that command, love your neighbor as yourself, that applies first to the people under your roof and then everyone close to your roof. And ultimately, we know from the parable of the Good Samaritan, everybody that the Lord would have us encounter. It's the great joy uh, to get to have the chance to show forth the glory of God and point to the Father in all things. Amen.